This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. I have been reading the book of Ezekiel during my personal devotions, and I have found that it is very relevant to the day in which we live. There are three things that I believe we need to be warned about, and I want to look at all three of them today. It is my hope that they will drive us to search the scriptures for how we are to do the work of God. If God's ways worked in Bible times, I think it is safe to say they will work today. We don't need more programs and new programs. What we need to do is return to the precepts of God. The first thing that Ezekiel shows us in this passage of Scripture is who God is. The phrase, shall know that I am the Lord, is used 77 times in the Bible. And 63 of these are found in the book of Ezekiel. They're speaking to four different, or excuse me, five different groups. The first one is, ye shall know, and this is talking about Israel knowing who God is. The second one is, they shall know, and this is talking to the nations round about uh, Israel so that they would know who God is. The third group is, thou shalt know, of course this is a group of one, it's God talking to Ezekiel himself that he might know who God really is. The fourth group is to the inhabitants of Egypt, and of course this is talking to Egypt as a nation particularly. And the fifth group is the heathen. This is telling the world that they need to know who God is. God does what he does so that everyone will know that he is God. The underlying words help us understand what is meant each time it is used. Fifty-nine times it says, the Lord, and Lord is all in capital letters. This means it's speaking of Jehovah, and Jehovah means the everlasting eternal God. The other five times it says, the Lord God. In this case, the word Lord is not in all caps, it is, so it's not Jehovah, it's Adonai, or the Sovereign Lord, and God is in all caps, and it is a translation of the Hebrew word Jehovah, which is a form of Jehovah, and therefore it means the uh, everlasting God. The term Lord God is used 217 times in the book of Ezekiel. Folks, we need to understand that our God is the Sovereign Lord, the everlasting, eternal God, and that we will answer to Him in the judgment. This is true for the saved at the judgment seat of Christ and for the lost at the great white throne judgment. I want to make a comment here on this idea of Him being the Sovereign Lord. This is not Calvinism. Ezekiel makes it quite clear that the Calvinistic definition of sovereign is not the biblical definition. The Calvinistic definition says that God has foreordained everything and everything is done according to his will. They say that if it's not that way, then he's not sovereign. Well, that's not what the word sovereign means. Ezekiel clearly shows that God's will is not uh, always done. It is not his will that we rebel against uh, his precepts, and it is his will that those who have rebelled against his precepts repent and turn back to him. 
Sovereign does not mean that the one who is sovereign always gets what he wants. It means that he has the right and the power to punish those who violate his will. Remember, our God is the sovereign eternal God to whom we must all give account one day. With that in mind, I think it's important that we uh, make sure that we're following God's principles in everything we do. The second thing that Ezekiel talks about that I think we need to look at today is what he calls untempered mortar. Ezekiel uses the word untempered mortar five times and four of them are found in the following passage. This is Ezekiel chapter 13 verses 10 through 15. Because, even because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, and there is no peace, and one built up a wall, and lo, the other daubed it with untempered mortar. Say unto them which daub with untempered mortar, that it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower, and ye, O great, uh, o great hailstone, shall fall, and the stormy wind shall rend it. Lo, when the wall is fallen, it shall not be said unto you, Where is the daubing wherewith ye have daubed it? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will even rend with the stormy wind in my fury, and there shall be an overflowing shower in mine anger, and great hailstones in my fury to consume it. So I will break down uh, the wall that ye have daubed with untempered mortar, and bring it down to the ground, so that the foundation thereof shall be discovered, and it shall fall, and ye shall be consumed in the midst thereof, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I accomplish my wrath upon the wall, and upon them that have daubed it with untempered mortar, and will say unto you, The wall is no more, neither they which daubed it. There's a lot in this passage. It's a bit longer than I usually read on this broadcast, but I thought we needed to hear it all together. The term untempered mortar is the translation of one Hebrew word, and it means plaster or slime. The passage says that the wall will not stand when the storms of testing come upon it because the mortar is not strong enough to hold it. Although the picture is painted of a physical wall, I think it's clear that the real subject is a spiritual wall. The context shows that the subject is prophets claiming to speak for God when in fact they are speaking for themselves. This passage shows this by starting with because, even because they have seduced my people. So it's talking about God's people being seduced by the preachers. I think there are two very important things we learn from this passage. The first thing we've learned is that the mortar is bad. The stones in the wall are not held together with a substance that would hold up under testing. The prophets were not giving the people the word of God. They were teaching the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. They were saying God said when God had not said. We see this today when we listen to the preaching that pretends to be the preaching of the Word of God when Scripture is taken out of context, when a passage is used as a pretext to say what the, the preacher wants to say instead of expounding upon what it really says. The passages that are not like or are not understood are explained away. Doctrine is only superficially taught. The people are not given enough to defend what they believe against the uh, attacks of the devil. 
Untempered means that it is not properly prepared and therefore lacks the strength that it should have. If we don't stand against it, that is untempered mortar, it will destroy us. Our families and our churches will also be destroyed. Why do you think we have so many that uh, will not stand for righteousness? Why do you think so many of our young people drop out of church as soon as they leave home? Why do you think there are so many problems in our families and our churches? It's because we are building with untempered mortar. When our building blocks, that is our doctrine, are put together in an unsound way, we get a, a wall, a spiritual wall that will not stand. The second part of this is that the air is whitewashed. That means it's painted over to look good. Uh, those who teach air do so in a manner that really sell, sounds good. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now it's important that we understand what he's talking about here. We're being warned that there are those out there who want to deceive us. We must therefore be on constant guard. Everything we hear, no matter who preaches it, including myself, must be checked out by the scripture. If it doesn't agree with what the scriptures say, then it is false doctrine or untempered mortar. The doctrine spoken of here is a doctrine that is taught by the scriptures. In other words, if they're teaching something other than what we find in the scripture, it, it's this false doctrine that these false preachers are preaching. We are to avoid those who teach it. Now, folks, I hate to say this, but sometimes our pastors do this. And if our pastors are doing this, we should confront them about it. If he can't show us from the scriptures why we are wrong, and if he's not willing to correct his error, we should leave that church and go find another one where the pastor is sound. However, let me say this before you go off attacking your pastor on something you disagree with him with. If it's unclear or if he can show you, you from the scriptures, the pastor always carries the day. If it's unclear, remember that the pastor is God's leader in your church, so we should give deference to him. We should follow his teachings. If it's somebody outside our church, we should avoid them. We are to separate ourselves from those who do not teach uh, biblical doctrine. That's very clear in the scriptures. Another interesting word in this passage is it uses the word daubed. This word means to spread like when you paint something. It supports the idea of whitewashing to cover up the ugliness of their false doctrine. It seems to me that this is a warning against teaching false doctrine as a basis for our beliefs and covering it up or whitewashing the air. In Colossians 2.8 it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the, uh, the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ." Man's philosophy has crept into Bible-believing circles. We need to be aware of this fact, to watch out for it, and do everything we can to get rid of it because it is both deceitful and empty. 
Untempered uh, means that it is not pro properly prepared and therefore it lacks the strength that it should have. And the reason we see a lack of strength in our churches, in our families, and even in our personal lives is because we're building with untempered mortar and then we're whitewashing it to make it sound good and just using words that sound good. Folks, we need to get back to doing it God's way exactly and all the time. The third thing that I see in the book of Ezekiel that's important for us today, and probably the most important, is the watchman's uh, responsibilities. And I want to look at, at uh, this responsibility because it's the responsibility that we as preachers have. So this part may be a little bit more geared to preachers, but it's good for all of us. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 6, it says, And again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of, of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon the land, if the people of the land uh, take a man of their coast and set him for a watchman, if when he seeth the sword sound the trumpet, and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood will be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. Uh, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But, this is important, if the watchman see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come, and take any person from among them, he is taking away, away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require of the watchman's hand. Preachers, that's a very important warning, and we better listen to it and make sure that we're warning people about the dangers that face us in this modern world. And there are a lot of them, and some of them we're, we're uh, uh, overlooking. To some degree, as I said earlier, this passage applies to every Christian. However, it's mostly to preachers. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that the Bible gives the, the church four different types of, pro, of preachers. In verse 4.11 it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now folks, I did a very in-depth study on this passage of scripture and these various words, and I don't have time to go over uh, this with you today on this broadcast. I have talked about it in the past. Uh, but the, the rest of the chapter, after naming these preachers, tells us what their job is. It's mostly maturing the saints and preparing them for the work of God. Now, the four types of preachers are apostles. Now, we think that word apostle only re, uh, applies to the, or refers to the apostles of Jesus Christ. It's not true. The a Bible uses that word in other uh places about other people. For example, Barnabas was not one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, but he is definitely called an apostle. I believe, and I've studied this in depth, like I say, that the apostles are missionaries or church planters. They warn the heathen in the place where they are sent by God and win them to Christ and establish churches. That's their job. Then there's prophets. Now these are those who are called specifically by God to warn God's people when they stray from his precepts. 
Then there are evangelists, and evangelists are especially gifted to take the warning of coming judgment to the lost people, give them the gospel, and bring them to Christ. Now, we're all to be involved in evangelism, but there are those who are given the special gift, and they're better at it than the most of us. We still need to be doing it, but remember that this is a special kind of preacher. Then there's pastors and teachers, and I believe that's one gift. You may disagree and make it too, and I wouldn't argue with you over that. But their job is to teach sound doctrine to the members of the churches where God has placed them and to help them through the rough times that come in their lives, and we all have those rough times. Warning is a major part of the ministry of all of these preachers. Prophets do have a uh, special... Uh, calling in this because that's their primary missions but the pastors also have that responsibility because they're watching over the souls of their uh, uh, church members in Ephesians 13:17 it says obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they which much give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for it is unprofitable to you. We as Christians are to obey and submit to those that God has placed over us. And if we do, it makes their job easier. They can do it with joy, and it makes it more profitable to us if we do that. Now, this is not a blind obedience or a blind submission. That would result in creating some kind of a cult. We're told to try everything by the scriptures. And as I said earlier, whenever somebody preaches anything, it is our job as individuals to check it out by the scriptures and see uh, whether or not it's true. However, if the pastor is not deviating from the scriptures, we are to obey him and to submit to him. Now, I'm a preacher. I'm a member of Temple Baptist Church. I'm nearly twice the age of my pastor, but he is still the pastor of that church, and I am to submit and to obey him as long as he follows scriptures. And folks, this is not an opinion. It's a command. It's not an option. It's something that we are told we're supposed to do. Ezekiel tells us that it is the uh, watchman's job to warn, and it is our job to take the proper action when we are warned. If the watchman warns and uh, one that hears doesn't hearken to what he hears, doesn't listen, his blood is on his own head. But if the watchman does not warn, it's still the responsible uh, responsibility of each one of us to do what is right according to God's precepts. To do otherwise is to walk in iniquity. But if, if we... Uh, are not warned by the watchman and we don't correct our ways he is held accountable for God or to God for not warning us we're still be in our iniquity but uh, uh, God holds the watchman responsible for not watch our warning and folks especially preachers this means that we should be paying attention and making sure that everything we're telling the people everything we're preaching is based on God's principles and we also need to make sure that the way we're doing his work is God's way I want to spend the rest of this message speaking especially to preachers preachers it's a great honor to be called of God as a preacher 
Whether it be a missionary, a prophet, an evangelist, or a pastor teacher, it is the greatest honor we could ever have. We must remember, however, that it also carries a great responsibility. As we saw in Hebrews, we must give an account to God for how we watch for the souls of those that God has placed us over. There are many things that I could look at on this, but let me give you what I think is a very important example of something that is being taught today that is untempered mortar. In Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 22, it says, Because with lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way, by promising him life. Now it's that last phrase that I want to focus on because we are doing that in a way that we don't even realize we're doing it and we shouldn't be doing it. This passage is talking about those who prophesy or preach out of their own hearts and not according to the word of God. They make the righteous sad and strengthen the hands of the wicked. How do they do this? They do not seek biblical repentance before promising life to sinners. They lead people to say a prayer and then promise them that if they were sincere in that prayer, they have eternal life. Folks, the evidence is all around us that that's not true. Uh, untempered mortar here is the fact that we're telling the saved that because they saved, uh, they prayed a prayer asking Jesus to come into, uh, into their hearts that they're saved and that they have eternal life. They're promising in that life. And I challenge any of you to show me this in scriptures. And believe me, I've looked for it. Although a person may pray and probably even should pray when he uh, gets saved, the prayer has nothing to do with receiving salvation. It is probably the fruit of truly believing in the first place which brings salvation because you see folks, we're saved by repenting or turning from trying to save ourselves by our dead works and uh, putting our full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. In other words, his shed blood. In Romans 3.25, it says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And that's talking about Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And the verse goes on from there. Jesus himself declared the necessity of true repentance for salvation. He said, I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's in Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Biblical repentance is a repentance from dead works, and you'll find that in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. The first dead works we are to repent of is our own efforts to save ourselves. Our turning does, uh, does not stop there, and it goes beyond that. And once we're saved, uh, uh, we're, we have the Holy Spirit inside, and, and he will convict us when we sin, and true repentance will cause us to repent when the Holy Spirit brings that, con uh, that uh, conviction. But I want us to understand that uh, uh, it's the turning from our good works and trusting Christ that saves us. It's not saying a prayer. On the same subject, we're telling people they have to repent of their sins in order to be saved. That's another doctrine that you can't find in the scriptures. How can a lost person prevent of his sins when he doesn't even know what they are? They can know that they are sinners and that they've rebelled against God and they're in trouble with him. But until they're saved, they're not going to know about the little sins 
and they're just as bad in God's sight as the big ones, and they can't know that they need to turn from those little things. I don't have time to take you through the study I did on this, but the conclusion of the study is this, uh, that sinners are to repent of their efforts to save themselves, their dead works, and the saved are to turn from their sins. Remember, every religion except biblical Christianity teaches that our works are involved in our salvation. Most say they save us, but some say they have to be added to our faith and things like this. So it's, it's there. And the Bible teaches contrary to that. The whitewashing part of this is when we say we have won many souls to Christ because we lead them to pray. While some uh, do truly get saved using uh, these present methods, uh, that is the selling of a prayer, it is in spite of it and not because of it. So many more make a profession of faith based on their prayer, and in a short time you can't find them anywhere. If they see you in the grocery store, they'll move quickly to get away from you out of your sight so you don't confront them again. I have seen many churches who brag about how many souls they win each year. Yet, after years of doing this, the churches are still the same size they were when I first met the churches. The church should be growing if it's truly winning souls. There's something drastically wrong with winning souls and your church not growing. The worst thing about this is that there are many of those who, suppose, who are supposedly saved but show no interest in spiritual things and live as if there was no God in their life, just however they want. When we try to reach this kind of person who's obviously still lost, and when we present them the gospel the way it's usually presented, what do they say? They say, oh, I did that when I was 12 or whatever age it was that they did it, and uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You can't get them to, uh, to salvation because they said they already did that because they were taken to this idea that if you pray a prayer and you were sincere when you prayed it, that you're on your way to heaven no matter what. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. Let me close by saying that uh, Ezekiel is a book that is very relevant to the world we live in today. It reminds us that God is the sovereign Lord and the everlasting eternal God. It warns us against using poor building materials as we build our churches and against whitewashing the methods that we use. Folks, we need to get this straight. We have to follow the biblical example. It also reminds us that those who are called of God to preach his word will be held accountable by him to how we did it and what we taught. The bottom line is God is always right, and when we don't follow his precepts, we are always wrong. We need to search the scriptures, especially the New Testament, to see how they did things in the, in, in the first century and how they did them in Bible times. They were accused of actually turning the world upside down. Now, when did that happen? That happened within 20 to 25 years after the death of Christ. They had made such an impact on the world around them that they were, or were uh, accused of turning the world upside down. Wouldn't it be great if we could see the same thing today, if we could see Christians being accused of turning the modern world upside down? We're not seeing it today, and we should be seeing it. And I can assure you folks that we would see it if we would just do one thing.
if we would get back to following God's principles in everything. Now, I use the example of uh, how we're presenting the gospel in a way that makes it easy for somebody to say a prayer and then we're promising their, uh, them that they're going to heaven. But there are other ways that we're uh, using untempered mortar and we're whitewashing it. We're uh, not following God's principles on the makeup of the family and the roles of each member of the family, the husband's role and the father's role and the wife and the mother's role. We're not teaching that the way the Bible teaches it. And then we wonder why our families are, are crumbling. We're not teaching uh, things about conduct in church that, that should be taught. And we wonder why our churches are crumbling. We're not teaching about modesty and things like this like we should be. We're building with untempered mortar, mortar, folks. And it's time that we go back to the Bible, that we search the scriptures, that we do, frankly, what I've been doing, reading through Ezekiel. And every time I read something in there, I go in my mind, how does this affect me? What does this mean I should be doing? And how should I be doing it? And folks, that's the secret to changing everything and getting us back to seeing the same kind of results today that they saw in the New Testament. And we could do that if we just would. But we're so caught up in our school of thought, what I was taught in Bible college, what my pastor said to me, and we're following those things instead of the Word of God. Folks, don't you think it's time we get back and fix that? I do. Talk to you again next week. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828 828- 244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.